Hello and welcome back. My name is Luke and you're listening to another episode of the Next Stage Podcast. Between accusations of voter suppression, the January 6th insurrection, and two impeachments, the Trump presidency was tumultuous, to say the least. Join the Obama Foundation's David Seamus, ACLU President Deborah Archer, and Federal Election Commissioner Ellen Weintraub to find out if American democracy is dying or if it's starting an overdue revival. I'm Steve Clemens, and I want to just start this with just a comment that there are going to be people at the door today taking sign-ups of people here at, at Web Summit who want to become election monitors in the United States. Like we send monitors around the world to watch what they're doing. Let me just open this up, uh, and I'm kind of joking about that, but we de- do need you. Um, Deborah, let me just open it by asking the question about the solvency of American democracy. We have a large population in the United States that does not believe that our election system uh, has been uh, fair, uh, that it has been rigged against them. And I guess I want to start out with you and ask you, as we discuss whether American democracy is dead, as we discuss voting rights, as we see what happened in the last election, what the challenges are, are, do you believe that the system of laws and voting we have is solvent enough to survive? (laughs) That's a great question. I think democracies are fragile. They require that we pay attention, that we work to protect them, to take care with them. And if voting rights is seen as the foundation of democracy, then our democracy is crumbling, because that foundation is crumbling. I think... You know, the barriers that we're seeing to political participation, voting and other ways of engaging in our democracy, are really dangerous because they represent the intention of some people to hold on to power indefinitely and completely, and allowing access to others only when it serves their purpose. Uh, People have said that white supremacy is running rampant in the United States. Democracy is a threat to white supremacy, and so white supremacy is a threat to our democracy. We used to think that it was only about protecting access for the most marginalized people, black people, other people of color. That's still really a core goal and a challenge, but now the work is also to protect access to democracy for everyone, right. because again, it's, it's at risk. David, as I was thinking about this and realizing we're sitting in Lisbon, Portugal, with a narcissistic forum in a way about how about us in American democracy, I wanna ask you, when I walk around Lisbon and I meet people, uh, we, we used to have a, a, a saying in America called Midwest nice. I sort of feel like there's a Lisbon nice here. I haven't met, uh, I haven't met an indifferent person in this country yet. But I guess my question to you is when you look at the community, when you look at the state of empathy, mutual concern, people that knew that they would argue but they were still in the same nation, has that collapsed in the United States? Is there something we can learn internationally about community, empathy, caring for each other that has disappeared or that is disappearing in the United States? Steve, um, for me, when I think about democracy, Essentially, voting is the minimum. Um, That at the end of the day, democracy is an expression of the people within a society and a culture. And over the past 10 to 15 years, what you have seen in the United States and globally for a variety of different reasons, that even though we have tremendous ability to be connected with one another, we lack connection. Right. And when that happens... That's when demagoguery of any stripe can rise 
because the ability to turn one person against another is turbocharged because of that isolation and fear and anxiety. And so it is a global phenomenon. Now, the one thing to say in defense of American democracy mm. uh, is that when you look at the 330 million people that make up the oldest constitutional democracy on the planet, we are the most diverse along any number of lines. We have a million people per year flocking to come to the United States and many more who want to come. And so even though the expression of our politics in our government is fraying, right. one of the things that gives me hope on the south side of Chicago, where I live right now, is that you can see an African-American family, a Hispanic family, a white family, immigrant from Poland or Portugal, engaging in community in a way that is right. unique and powerful. So I think it's there, but it needs to be generated. Well, thank you. Ellen, you sit in a... I mean, you're in the Federal Elections Commission, right? So you look at law and institutions and who gets to vote, who gets to put money in it. And I mean with this all due respect to David, because David, folks, he helps run Obama land, right? He's the CEO of Obama land. And it's going to have tickets someday. You can visit. It's going to be a cool thing. <laughs> but I want to know why, how we went from Obama land to Trump land. We went to one of the most autocratic presidents in U.S. history, and we all of a sudden saw democracy get very wobbly. What happened, Ellen, in your view? What, who are the villains in this story? What are the players? What's the money side of this that you think is eroding democracy in the United States? Well, I do think this has a lot to do with money. We have a dysfunctional money and politics system where the Supreme Court has told us that when there are mega donors who put hundreds of millions of dollars into trying to affect who gets elected and what can and cannot get enacted after the election, that there is no potential for corruption. It is impossible under the law, under our Supreme Court doctrine, for that to be corrupting. And I think that people look at that and they shake their heads and they say, that does not make sense. That doesn't comport with my reality, with the way I understand the world. When you have leaders, when you have politicians who are out there trying to sell a story that undermines our faith in our own democracy, they are playing with fire. And there is unfortunately a lot of kindling out there, some of it generated by people's disgust and feelings that they don't have a voice, that they can't be heard because they're getting drowned out by people with more power, more money, more influence. And we have to be really careful. As Deborah said, democracy is fragile and it relies on that trust. Once it is broken down, people may think that they could set that match and do a controlled burn, but there is too much material out there for people to catch fire, for, for, for that information to catch fire and spread. And once we destroy that faith in our own democracy and our own institutions, it's going to be really hard to build it back. It's possible. I believe we can do it, but it is, we are in a very Ellen, is anybody moment. in the world getting democracy better than the United States today, performing better we are in your view? Do you guys have those sort of discussions? I don't want to pick favorites. Don't you? David? Uh, look, um, again, I don't want to sound like a homer, but uh, notwithstanding the challenges that we're all seeing, two days ago in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, essentially turnout across the board, Democrat, Republican, and Independent, 
was much higher than it had been just four years before. The election in 2018 was the highest midterm in 100 years. The election in 2020 was the biggest turnout in over 100 years. And so from a person perspective, from a voter engagement perspective, now a lot of it driven by anger and rage, but on the other side, uh, again, you, you look at places in rural Virginia or in urban Virginia and what I saw two days ago, and people on the left and on the right monitoring elections like they should in right. working the polls in a transition of power that's about to happen. Uh, again, we've been at it for a long time. The institutions so far, right. in my opinion, have held. Thank you. Deborah. if I'm in a, if I'm a, I'm going to be candid, a black or brown person in inner city Philadelphia, or if I'm down in Alabama or Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, maybe I'm out in the rural area, what are the cards stacked against me in terms of me achieving the rights that I'm entitled to in America? And what is the ACLU doing <laughs> to change that around? So what we're seeing is a state-by-state systematic effort to disenfranchise folks, to erect roadblocks, to uh, registering to vote, to uh, participating, removing polling stations, so you have to wait in line Which means for six. If I'm that person, I'm targeted. I'm yes. being targeted by the system, right? I think, it, 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 yeah. as I said, it, you know, so much of what's wrong with our system is about white supremacy. And um, not taking us too far back, but shortly after emancipation in a case called Dred Scott versus Sanford, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that black people had no rights that white men were obligated to respect. And we see that sentiment alive and well in our electoral system. We saw it in the response to the 2020 election cycle. We saw it on January 6th. Um, and David mentioned that we have record voter turnout and record voter turnout in, in communities of color. But let's not think that that's a success. That's not something to celebrate on behalf of the government. That's the effort of NGOs, nonprofits, like the ACLU, like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, like the NAACP, out there fighting this effort to suppress the right to vote, out there making every effort to make sure that people have access, meaningful access, to exercise their right to vote and to participate in our political system. Well, thank you. You know, I always had that when I was in uh, high school, I learned this concept called civitas. Civitas is sort of civic spirit, but you're going to wrestle with somebody with different views, but you all understand that you're on the same boat, essentially. I mean, that's essentially a poor definition, but kind of gets there on civitas. But we're all essentially understanding that we have a, uh, a future that's tied together as opposed to divorcing each other, ripping a nation apart. And Ellen, I want to make you responsible for fixing this and healing the country oh, in front of our large audience here. What are the kinds of things that you, from a legal framework perspective, um, think should be done to help heal the nation, to help come to what some of the things that David talked about, create a sense of community, caring, involvement, engagement that is not just an episode, but that becomes real and that the rest of the world can admire again. Because I got to tell you, the rest of the world is looking at us like we're a soap opera. 
Well, I think you have given me a test that is too big for the Federal Election Commission, but there are laws, there are bills in Congress that would really help, that would help to re-enfranchise people who have been the victim of voter suppression, that would help us have reliable and um, elections that people could trust, that we would have reliable and nonpartisan professional audits after the fact, not fake audits where people come in looking for a particular answer, but where we have uh, but in, in Arizona, they came looking for an answer, and they didn't get it. And they couldn't even get yeah, it, which yeah. just shows you how well the election actually was run, and the people should trust the outcome. But we need to ensure, we need to build those guardrails back up again so that people can trust the results. We are barreling towards a situation right. where neither side is going to be willing to trust the results if the other side wins, and democracy cannot survive that. Right. Can I add to that? Yeah, please because, go ahead, Because you asked what the... Sure. about the work of the ACLU. Right. And it's important for us to do that work at the tail end to ensure that elections, um, that people can trust the result. But it's also about making sure that people can register to vote and access the vote. And, and in that regard, there's so much more that United States can be doing to affirmatively make voting easy in the way that they have done in other countries. Automatic registration same-day voter registration, getting rid of onerous voter ID laws, uh, stop purging. We have this process in many states where if you don't choose to exercise your right to vote in one election, you can be dropped from the voter rolls in the next election um, without your knowledge. And so we have to take more affirmative efforts to make sure that we are making it easier for people to participate, encouraging people to participate. I think, it, it, back to our theme about democracy dying, or whether or not it's dying. Uh, one way that democracy dies is that people believe that their vote don't, doesn't count, and even worse when it's true. And so we also have to make sure that we have election systems, redistricting systems, right. that make sure that every vote counts. One vote, one person, one vote. Does ACLU have a killer app out there that's good for voting rights and make, making people understand what the game is? We have a wonderful program on our website that focuses on redistricting, which we're engaged in now, to help people understand the process and what's going on in their community. And there are lots of resources on our website to help people get engaged in their community, to fight for open elections at the federal level, at the state level. You want to make sure you're voting for a school board and water district. Uh, just really get engaged at every level. Well, thank you. David, let me ask you a tough question, because you know I have such respect for President Obama, for whom you're setting up an active living, community building, um, living museum in, in the future. But, but, and, and I know the folks you run with come out of the world, but I, I think it's important that you know, every politician, every leader is different. Some do things that are better than others. But if you were to critique the Biden administration and say, what should they be doing better than they are to build back better, to help Americans heal in this moment. What be a, a couple of things you would advise President yeah. Biden to do? Uh, Steve, I am uh, I am long out of the business of advising presidents uh, about what they can do. Let me just say what I have seen. Yeah. Um, Joe Biden has, and I had a great honor of serving with him for 50 years. Uh, developed a reputation in an approach to governing, which in this moment, right now notwithstanding all of the turmoil around him, there is a consistency to what is an old, quaint notion, but that he believes firmly. Hmm. That at the end of the day, when he needs to get either 50 or 51 votes, 
it's likely that he's not going to get a Republican vote to support him on something, but he's going to ask every single time. And the other thing that he won't do is when he gets the unified no about it, to question the motives or the intention of the individual or to close the door because you know what? In a month or in two months or in three months or in a year, he's going to need to engage with those people. And the final thing I'll say is, and it's the beauty of the presidency, it is the only person that represents everyone. And so a president of the United States in their finest moment doesn't have the luxury, nor should they, right. be the Democratic president or the Republican president. And that's the thing that I just believe that Joe Biden does um, just in his bones in a really good way. And let's thank you for that. That sounds very uh, compelling. And I, and, I, and I have to say I largely agree with you. But in 30 seconds each in the minute and a half we have, um, Another tough question, as we think about the solvency of American democracy, uh, and I know there are caveats, but if you were to say which of these two represent greater threats to the solvency of, of, of the American democratic future that we needed to get our heads around and solve, is it Russia meddling or is it Facebook dividing? Ellen? I'm going to go with Facebook. I think that Facebook has been uh, a venue for spreading the disinformation. Russia wouldn't be able to spread the disinformation on its own. It's been using Facebook. That's what happened in, in 2016. And unfortunately, we are all living in our own information bubbles where we don't hear arguments on the other side. Right. And, and their algorithms are just ginning up the outrage, which is not what we need. David. Um. Facebook gets, in my opinion, too much of the critique. The average American watches seven hours of television per day. Mm. Social media is an accelerant of the underlying foundation that's being driven by television and print and radio in a way that is as much a part of the problem as the social media accelerant. Deborah. Between those two, I'm going to go with Facebook. But I will say that the problems with our democracy start long before that and are deeper than that. Well, let me just say to the folks here, American democracy is not dead, which is the question here, because we're having conversations like this that are very smart, that are very thoughtful and introspective. I have them with folks on the right. I have them with folks on the left. Everyone's trying to struggle and figure this out. Hopefully, we'll be impressive to all of you in a few years. Give us a little time, and we'll work it out. Uh, but David Seamus, Ellen Weintraub, Deborah Archer, thank you all very, very much. And thank all of you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Web Summit returns to Lisbon in November. Our early bird tickets are going on sale June 30th. Follow the link in our show notes and save money by pre-registering for your early bird ticket now.